Okay, it's good to see you. Thank you for coming out tonight. Um, Pastor Brendan sends his apology. Um, uh, Catherine and Joshua have their wedding practice tonight. Um, they're uh, using the facilities at uh, Victory Baptist on Saturday for the wedding, and so they're having a practice there this evening. So that's why Pastor Brendan is now, having been at the prayer meeting, just headed across for the practice. So um, he sends his apology. Let's uh, take our Bibles, please, and turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. I'd like to uh, begin reading verse 25 and continue to verse 37. Luke chapter 10 from verse 25 to verse 37. Verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbour as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he willing to justify himself said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbour? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, I, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbour unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, Him that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go, and do thou likewise. Let's uh, begin our time of Bible study in prayer. Let's uh, pray together. Our Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for the scriptures. Thank you that it's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. I thank you that uh, through it we are equipped uh, to, do, to do every good thing that you call us to do. And uh, Lord, we uh, thank you for the, the confidence that we can have as we come to the scriptures. Thank you for the prophet uh, that is there for us. And uh, we pray that you would uh, be our teacher tonight. Open our eyes, help us to see, help us to learn, help us to understand, help us to uh, benefit uh, from our study tonight. And pray that uh, it would uh, uh, put uh, uh, in our hands, as it were, Um, some uh, resource um, that we might uh, use as we seek to reach others other people with the gospel Uh, we pray this in jesus name amen well tonight we we continue our studies in evangelism and our goal is to learn from the example of jesus our premise is 
that the Lord Jesus is a wonderful example, as the word that's missing, a wonderful example of how to evangelize. That is our premise. And therefore, what we're doing, we're looking, looking at different conversations that Jesus had, different interactions that Jesus had with a variety of non-believers, and we're paying particular attention to the strategies that he used as he spoke with them. Now, obviously, Jesus is God, And because he is God, there are many things that he said and did that we cannot. For example, Jesus, by virtue of his omnipotence, raised the dead. We cannot. Jesus, by virtue of his omniscience, foretold the future. We cannot. He knew what was going on in people's hearts. We do not. And you notice there, many of his interactions with people were manifestations of his deity. And yet, in many instances, rather than exercise the attributes of deity, he proceeded in such a way as to leave an example for us in our humanity. For instance, when he resisted the devil in the wilderness, in that sort of situation... Jesus could have exercised his deity and banished Satan to the lake of fire for all eternity with with a word. But he didn't do that. Instead, he set an example for us. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And in proceeding this way, Jesus showed us how we are to resist the devil. We can follow the strategy that Jesus used there and it's the same with jesus's evangelistic conversations because he is god he could have very easily overwhelmed people with displays of uh, such power and brilliance that people just fell at his feet and just automatically cried out for forgiveness by virtue of his divine wisdom he could defeat anyone in a debate he could overwhelm any of his opponents with incredible arguments but we can't do those things and so in many situations Jesus dealt with people in ways that we can and in this way he set us an example to follow now over the last two weeks we've seen that Jesus had conversations and interactions with people who were hard-hearted Cold and indifferent, not at all interested in the scriptures, not at all concerned about their own soul's security. And we notice that with such people, Jesus would often make surprising statements that would generate interest, that would grab their attention, stir up desire to know more. And as a practical help to us, last week we put forward seven, sorry, six suggested statements that we might make that people would find, might find surprising and therefore continue a conversation with them, engaging their interests. Number one, first surprising statement we spoke about last week, Christianity was never meant to make the world what? A better place. Okay? And I'm, I'm, I'm doing the review because uh, we, we learn by reviewing. Um, and uh, if we don't review, we, we forget. And we come to Bible study on Wednesday night and then we go out door knock on Saturday and we talk to someone I thought, oh man, 
I really wish I remembered what we had in Bible study on Wednesday night. Okay, that's what happens. And so we're doing a little bit of review here. Secondly, Jesus did not envisage the world getting better and better. Thirdly, the Bible does not teach that man is basically good. Number four, nobody gets to heaven by being good. Number five, there's punishment beyond this life in the eternal fires of hell. Number six, God doesn't listen to the prayers of most people. And you can probably think of others that would serve you well in uh, trying to engage people in uh, conversation who are just very, very resistant initially. But in addition to having conversations with people who were totally disinterested, Jesus also interacted with self-righteous people. And so will we as we engage in evangelistic conversations. In your notes, in Jesus' day, the self-righteous people were the scribes and the Pharisees. Those who were devoted to Judaism. Now, of course, Judaism is still with us today. However, in this section of God's vineyard, self-righteous people will be found in a wide variety of religions. How many religions are there in the world? Hundreds, perhaps thousands. Someone's estimated 4,000. Would you believe two? The truth is you can categorize every single religion in the world into two basic categories. You can strip away all the externals from major differences to minor differences, cut right to the heart of the matter quite easily. Let's think about it this way. Most religions in the world acknowledge a creator and a spiritual world. In defining its creator and understanding the spiritual world, that's where the differences in all the religions are. But more importantly, it's in how to know the creator and how to enter into that restful afterlife. This, these are the things that really separates all the different groups. In other words, how do you reach God And how do you get to heaven or paradise? They're the two questions that all the different religions are basically trying to answer. In some form or fashion, most religions in the world are attempting to answer those two basic questions. So how can we make, how can we, how can we take so many complicated systems and briefly simplify them into two basic belief systems? Two words. Just two words. I wonder if you know what they might be. They're short. Short on that. Do and done. Do and done. Whereas Christianity rests on faith in the work that Christ has done, D-O-N-E, for us and the righteousness which he gives, all the other religions in the world, whether it be Catholicism, or any of the world's non-Christian religions and cults, all of them are based on a system of works and depend upon the individual's capacity to achieve moral excellence. All of them depend upon what we can do or what we must do. 
And of course, that just leads to self-righteousness. Even liberal Christianity has as its basis self-righteousness. I think most of you would know that this church grew out of the local Presbyterian church up the road when the new minister back then in 1937-ish came bringing with him a liberal theology. Reverend McAllister didn't believe in the deity of Christ. He didn't believe that Jesus performed miracles. He didn't believe in the atoning death of Christ upon the cross. One Sunday he preached, quote, I don't know why Jesus died for me. I'm not a sinner. He had no appreciation for the atoning sacrifice of Christ. He had no concept of the fact that he was lost in sin. This is just self-righteousness. Liberal Christianity has its basis self-righteousness. So do, does nominal Christianity. For while nominal Christians will accept that, yes, there's a God in heaven and just Jesus certainly walked the earth, they feel no great need for personal salvation and maybe even are offended at the concept. Now, even though Jesus didn't deal with a wide variety of religions, he was constantly dealing with self-righteous people. And tonight we're going to see how he went about that. And even though we may not be familiar with all the thousands of religions in the world, if we understand the difference between the two major systems, the doing and the done, and if we understand how Jesus dealt with self-righteous people, we're all about doing, 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 we can, make, we can enter into conversations with all kinds of people and kinds of religions. You don't need to know all the great details. They believe in salvation by works. That's the bottom line. And on that basis, we can show them what the Bible says. But before we talk about how Jesus engaged with self-righteous people, before we look at that, it would be helpful for us to understand how self-righteous people look at this matter of righteousness and we do get some help about that in the book of Job perhaps oddly enough now in your notes often when we think about the book of Job we see it as a book in which uh, uh, in the Bible that deals with the topic of suffering and it certainly does that but it also deals with this matter of righteousness Job 25.4 for example ask the question How can man be justified with God? Or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? That question, and that's not the first time it was asked in the book of Job, but that question generated a whole lot of discussion in the book of Job. And when we consider that Job was probably the oldest book in the Bible that was written, this conversation has been going on for a very, very long time. In your notes, Job's comforters believe that Job was being punished because of some secret sin in his life. They certainly did not believe that a person had to be perfect. They did not believe that a holy God required perfection from his created beings. They believed that a reasonable level of righteousness was enough to satisfy God. And of course, they believed that they were sufficiently righteous. God was pleased with them. However, Job, on the other hand, God was not pleased with him. God was not satisfied 
with him. In their minds, God was not satisfied with Job. He was guilty of some secret sin. Therefore, God was punishing him. In their minds, God was like a schoolmaster. He doesn't discipline his students or expel them simply because they don't get 100%. He's happy if the student gets 51%. Delighted if they get 75 Some people are utterly immoral. They disgust God. They deserve God's punishments. But for those that do well, they earn God's high praise, while at the same time being allowed to retain a generous degree of sinful indulgence as long as the good outweighs the bad. And this was the view of Job's comforters, and it's precisely the view held by adherents of false religion today. So it's important for us to understand their view as we seek to engage them in conversation. Self-righteous people do several things. Number one... They magnify their attributes and their good deeds. Two, they minimize their faults. They excuse them or even ignore them. Number three, they underestimate the holiness of God. Number four, they diminish the seriousness of sin. In other words, they pulled God down to their level while boosting themselves up to his. Well, how did Jesus proceed with self-righteous people? To begin with, let's, let's have another think about how Jesus interacted with Nicodemus. Being a respected Pharisee, Nicodemus would have shared the outlook of his fellow religious leaders that is trusting in his own righteousness as sufficient to secure acceptance with God but no sooner had Nicodemus come to Jesus and asked his initial question Jesus immediately spoke to him about the new birth the thing that Jesus emphasized with this self-righteous man was his need for true authentic spiritual experience he needed to be born again so this is the first way jesus dealt with self-righteous people and this is a way that we can deal with self-righteous people by emphasizing spiritual experience you've got to be born again i think many of us would know that Charismatics and Pentecostals have a defective theology. They're guilty of overemphasizing experience, usually even elevating it above the authority of Scripture. It's obviously an unbiblical extreme. However, in rejecting the unbiblical extreme, we must not be dismissive of authentic biblical experience. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you, set you free. If you know the truth of the word of God, it will give you an authentic experience of freedom. In your notes, in his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus spoke about the legitimate spiritual experience of the new birth. It's an imperative. Without it, Nicodemus will never be saved. His own righteousness was not enough. Nicodemus knew nothing about the new birth. 
And it is here that the tender spot of the self-righteous person is best touched. That's the way Peter Masters puts it. Like that, it's, it's here that the tender spot of the self-righteous person is best touched. Because at this point, their spiritual bankruptcy is most obvious. You don't get to heaven unless you've been born again. And if you've never been born again, you've got a problem. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, last week we made the, the point that this statement by Jesus would have certainly surprised and shocked Nicodemus. Never heard anything like this before. He had to know more. Again, let's notice what Jesus is saying. He's saying that Nicodemus, respected leader that he was, he was given no saving credit for all of his life of meticulous ceremonial law-keeping. Accounted for nothing. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, as soon as we mention to someone that going to heaven or entrance into the kingdom of God is only possible by by being born again, the self-righteous people who evaluates everything in terms of his own accomplishments, that person is suddenly left floundering. And to emphasize the point about being the need to be born again, at this point, you know, we might illustrate that by sharing our own testimony how the Lord changed our life when we were born again or or sharing the testimony of some other person perhaps a well-known person whose life was transformed dramatically because they were born again it's not by works of righteousness which we have done but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration born again By the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Ghost, we are born again by the Spirit of God. In your notes, the new birth is one thing. That self-righteous person cannot claim to obtain to or be good at. And this is therefore the issue which we must emphasize and stress. Have you been born again? And just like we had nothing to do with our physical birth, in a similar way, the new birth is not something that we can achieve on our own merits. It's something that God has to do for us. And unless God does that for us, we'll never have eternal life. Now Jesus spoke firmly, but I don't think unkindly. And he certainly didn't say anything here to crush Nicodemus or leave him despairing. He spoke in this way to alarm his soul, to educate him about his great need to be made new. And this is what we by the grace of God might seek to do. We speak in faith, believing that the Spirit of God can take our words and use our words to help people to see their need and use Use our words to help people to see their the need for Christ. Jesus then went on to Nicodemus, didn't leave him hanging, went on to tell about the Son of Man coming down from heaven and also then being lifted up upon the cross as the 
serpent of brass was. And he then extended to Nicodemus the uh, gracious invitation, chapter 3, verse 16. Those who look to Christ and believe in Christ. Nicodemus, you know this story, don't you? Those who look to Christ and believe on him can have everlasting life. The major point that we see from Jesus' encounter with the self-righteous Nicodemus is the need to emphasise the necessity of personal conversion. This is where the self-righteous person is at their weakest. They desperately need a true spiritual experience. Okay, secondly, making matters personal. Making matters personal. As we prepare ourselves to share the gospel with a self-righteous person, we might be wondering, okay, how's this conversation going to go? What will they say? What if the conversation goes in an unexpected direction that I'm not prepared for? What if they drag me into a debate? What if they say things I don't know the answer, answers for? Now, we've already made the point that as God, Jesus could easily have defeated anyone in a debate. But instead of employing powers exclusive to divinity, Jesus pursued a pathway that we can follow. In the case of self-righteous people, as Jesus spoke with them, he made the issue personal. Again, we see that in his encounter with Nicodemus. In your notes, within a very short space of time, Jesus applied his message to Nicodemus personally. Ye must be born again. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Very personal. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus had a conversation with a self-righteous Jewish scholar. And Jesus does the same thing with him as he does with Nicodemus. He makes the matter personal verse 25 you've got the bible open there at luke chapter 10 verse 25 tells us that this man was a lawyer that meant he was one of the scribes scribes were often the lawyers or lawyers came from the the group of scribes because the scribes were the one who was entrusted with the law they were the experts in the law they were judges within the sanhedrin so as a scribe scribes and pharisees we know that group, this man was typical of the scribes and Pharisees of his day. He was a man who trusted in his own righteousness. Now the question he asked Jesus was a good question, but it did not come from sincere motives. We see that. He was merely tempting Jesus. He was trying to trap him. He wasn't interested in learning. Didn't think that he had anything to learn. And this is very often typical of self-righteous people. They don't want to learn anything from a witnessing Christian. They think they know it all. But what's interesting is the way that Jesus responded to this man. Notice he does not immediately attempt to teach the lawyer anything. He didn't give him a lecture. He didn't even answer his question. Rather, he responded to the lawyer's question by asking... A question, which is an interesting strategy, which Jesus employed on several occasions. 
You might recall another occasion where Jesus answered the question with a question. Remember the time they said, by whose authority do you do these things? He says, answer me this question and I'll tell you. The baptism of John, was it of God or was it of men? And they thought, if we say it was of God, he'll say, well, why didn't we follow, listen to John? If we say it was of men, all the people here think John's a hero. They said, we can't tell you. And Jesus said, neither can I tell you whose authority I'm working on. Here he answers this man's question by asking a question. Verse 26, he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And Peter Masters makes an interesting point. I've given you the paragraph there in your notes. He says, In witnessing... We do not have to rush to answer when asked a question. Sometimes it does not pay to answer too quickly. The person to whom we are witnessing may be trying to lure us along some line of discussion which we will later regret. It always pays to think for a moment about what lies behind the question and to answer the question with another question. We should want to know a little more about the person's views and how he looks at the things of God before we decide what approach to take. That's some good wisdom there. The lawyer is trying to trap Jesus. Jesus, of course, he knows that. but He responds with a question. Of course, Jesus didn't ask a question to obtain information. He knew the answer, but he asked the question to direct the conversation towards the man's soul. He asked the question in order to make the matter personal. And we can do the same thing as we have conversations with self-righteous people. We can ask the question or even if it's not in the form of a question, we can, we can say things, direct the conversation to make this matter personal. Now the lawyer gave a good answer to Jesus' question, no doubt. I think he was caught off guard, verse 27. And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbour as thyself. Good answer. But notice that Jesus responds in verse 28 by implying that the lawyer had never accomplished this. Jesus said, Thou hast answered right. Do this and thou shalt live. Now how's the lawyer going to respond to that? All of a sudden, he finds himself in a position where it's been publicly suggested, implied, that he, he does not love God or others as he should and that he needed to make progress. How should he respond? Would he say, but I'm already doing all these things and appear proud and conceited and maybe dishonest because probably there were people there who knew that he had not obeyed those two commandments as he should have? Or would he remain silent and thereby accept the humbling implications of Jesus' words? And you notice that he had to make a decision. Either speak up and declare righteousness or by his silence acknowledge his failure. There was only one way out of this dilemma and he took it. 
in typical lawyer fashion, he began to debate the definition of words. What do you actually mean by the word neighbour? Now this was indeed a masterful display by the Lord Jesus and we certainly cannot imitate his brilliant manoeuvring of the situation all within just a few seconds. But we can learn from him that our objective should be to help the person face up to his position rather than allowing them to take the conversation wherever they please and wherever they feel safe we need to help them to be able to see that they are not as righteous as they profess and indeed their souls are guilty before God unfortunately for this man there was no humble admission of guilt In order to escape the embarrassing situation, he asked the question, verse 29, notice, in order to justify himself, okay, this is his intention, the way they always think, in order to justify himself, verse 29, but he, willing to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who who is my neighbor? What do you mean by that word neighbor? Well, as a result of that question, he found himself listening to this very, very captivating parable that clearly identifies who his neighbour is, but it also shows the hypocritical hearts of uh, highly religious people like him who claim to be righteous. And this introduces us the third thing that Jesus often did when witnessing to self-righteous people, that is emphasising the sins of the heart emphasizing the sins of the heart in your notes the parable of the good samaritan provides us with perfect material to use with those who convince themselves that they are sufficiently righteous in god's eyes okay. this parable and the verses leading up to it from verse 25 onwards wonderful material if you are <coughs> Witnessing to a, 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 a self-righteous person and you have your Bible with you, Luke chapter 10 is a great place to take them. This parable that Jesus told would certainly have shocked the lawyer because the hero of the story is actually a Samaritan. And the villains in this story, that is those who don't show love to the neighbour, are obviously Jews, religious Jews. Self-righteous Jews like this lawyer. He would have been shocked by the parable. He's, he's all ears. But not only that, here we have another example of Jesus distancing himself from the false religion of the day. He taught, he taught that true godliness does not spring from outward religious observance, but from the heart and the the character of a person. In this parable, Jesus exposes the heartlessness and the pride and the lack of love of the self-righteous religious community. And in the same way, in your notes, we need to show how hopelessly inadequate is the concept of righteousness 
which makes the self-righteous person so satisfied with himself. We need to show how hopelessly inadequate is the concept of righteousness which makes a self-righteous person so satisfied with himself. This parable does a great job of doing that. The self-righteous Jews focused on external conduct like their washings and their fastings and their sacrifices and their details of clothing and their observance of special days while all the while ignoring sins of the heart like pride and hypocrisy, selfishness, lust, deceitfulness, dishonesty, lack of love and so on. In our conversations with unsaved people, we must be ready to talk about the sin behind the outward facade. We must prepared, be prepared to take them, talk about sins of the heart, the, the deep-seated perversions which, which, people, which everyone's guilty of, makes us offensive to a holy God. And these are the things, these are the sins which are forgotten by self-righteous people. Their outward deeds, they gladly acknowledge, but their inward condition is something to which they are blind. Turn over to Luke chapter 11, please. Luke chapter 11, from verse 37 onwards, we see another occasion where Jesus had another conversation with a self-righteous religious leader. This time it's a Pharisee. Verse 37, and he spake a certain, and, he, and as he spake, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him. And he went in and sat down to meet. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Now, of course, Jesus didn't forget to wash. He omitted the procedure deliberately and probably even provocatively. In your notes, the expected washings were not part of God's law. They were man-made traditions. And Jesus spoken to the Pharisees about this before. It's not the dirty hands. It's not even the dirty plates that defile a person. Matthew 7, 21 to 23, Jesus said, For from within, out of the heart of man, proceedeth evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile the man. Having said that back then, Jesus says a very similar thing now, verse 39. Now do ye Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. Now as we continue reading the chapter, we can see that Jesus' words here are strong of, uh, full of some of his strongest rebukes for the religious leaders. And I think in this instance, Jesus is acting or certainly speaking in the, his capacity as you know, king of kings and lord of lords, the one who knows the intentions of the hearts of man, the one who has perfect knowledge of all things, the one to whom everyone has to give an account. And I think that seeing Jesus in that capacity, rather than him setting an example for us to follow, I think this is probably the best way to approach this. I don't, in other words, I don't recommend we speak to people like this, especially if we've been invited to their place for dinner. I think that was Jesus' prerogative alone. Yet even so, 
from Jesus we are reminded of what our objective should be. Even if our approach should be perhaps a little bit more circumspect. For sinners who are saved by grace. In your notes, Jesus' strategy was to destroy the fabric of the Pharisees' self-satisfaction, which lay in his external behaviour. Here Jesus is turning the spotlight on internal behaviour, on sins of the heart. We see that further in verse 44. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are as graves which appear not, which are not seen, not visible, and that men that walk over them are not aware of them. Okay, usually graves in that place at that time were washed white. The tombs were whitewashed. The graves were whitewashed. The objective was to make them plainly visible because that helped people to avoid them. Because if they came into contact with a grave or a tomb, even inadvertently, they were pronounced ceremonially unclean. They had to remain that way for several days. Very, very inconvenient. That was in the law, Numbers 19, verse 6. And so therefore they would whitewash the graves. What Jesus is saying here is the Pharisees were like graves. They're like tombs. They're full of corruption and defilement. And that was the true condition of their hearts, though, they, though outwardly they presented very differently. But there's even more to it than that. Because if people really understood, what he's saying, if people really understood your inward corruption, people would avoid you like they avoid tombs, like they avoid graves. But because you put on this facade of righteousness, people unwittingly associate themselves with you and therefore are unconsciously being corrupted and defiled by you. Now probably our case won't be helped much by such bold proclamations and yet we can certainly make the point very clear again in appropriate ways for sinners saved by grace we can make the point that the inner appetites pride deceit selfishness etc are the things that make us offensive to a holy god defiled in his sight indeed our self-righteousness is as filthy rags To be righteous before God, we need the imputed righteousness of Christ. A.W. Tozer said, The only sin Jesus ever had was ours, and the only righteousness we can ever have is his. Now, while we're here in Luke chapter 11, we see another thing that Jesus did as he spoke with self-righteous people. It's another thing that safely serves as an example for us. And that is exposing petty niceties. Exposing petty niceties. In addition to the teaching here, sorry, sorry, in addition to teaching the contrast between external righteousness and sins of the heart, There's another distinction which self-righteous people need to be shown. In your notes, they need to be shown how God distinguishes between minor matters and major matters. Because a self-righteous person evaluates his performance in terms of these lesser niceties. 
So often they're concerned about matters of culture and refinement, about manners, about having social graces and the right fashion sense. We're certainly not suggesting that to have bad manners is a good thing or that having good manners is not important, but those things don't count for eternal salvation. And you know, self-righteous people strain at gnats while they swallow a camel. The Lord aimed this particular arrow of conviction at the hearts of self-righteous Pharisee in verse 42. Woe unto you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs. It passed over judgment and the love of God. These you ought to have done and not to have left the other undone. Concentrating on minuscule little things to neglect of the the weighty matters that are of particular concern to God. Self-righteous people feel superior to others. They're deeply concerned about things that affect them. They're deeply concerned about the peripheral things, the external things. God requires humility and meekness and love and concern for others and separation from evil and unselfishness and loyalty and obedience to God and his cause. And self-righteous people know nothing of these things. Until, until they are brought to realise that in God's sight, the self-righteous person has been the, the, the neglecter of things that are truly important. And there's a fifth thing which Jesus, Jesus did which serves as a strategy for us. Number five, exposing contrived righteousness which is just for show. Exposing contrived righteousness, which is just for show. If you look down to verse 43, we can see that Jesus highlighted this other major fault with the self-righteous person. He said, Woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye love the uppermost seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets. What Jesus is saying is this, that even their external works were maintained chiefly to impress those who noticed them. All their imagined righteousness was performed for watching eyes. They're not capable of genuine, sincere decency, righteousness or charity. They weren't moved by love for God or love for others. They were moved by self-love. They were moved by love of their own reputation. In your notes, and so it is today, self-righteousness turns on its charming, best behaviour for the crowd. But this demeanour changes very quickly once the crowd, the people go home. Righteous qualities are just play acting. When the audience is gone, the mask is off. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. We may have mentioned it last week. Take heed that you do not your arms before men to be seen of them. As the Lord Jesus said back there in Matthew chapter 6, these Pharisees would blow a trumpet, sound the trumpet before they did their righteous deeds so that everyone would know them. They would stand on street corners to pray in order that people would notice them. It's just for show. It's all about admiring eyes and enhancing their reputation. 
to do the right thing out of a sincere heart, to live in order to please God, even if no, no one else notices that was not their way. Fake righteousness needs to be shown for what it is. People can often see fake righteousness in someone else and they despise it. But people often need help seeing self-righteousness in ourselves. It's something that we tend to be blind to. Well, finally, if you turn over to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We see a sixth thing that Jesus did when he spoke with self-righteous people. Number six, dismantling comparative righteousness. Dismantling comparative righteousness. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, Jesus told the parable about the Pharisee and the publican. And in this parable, Jesus exposed the technique that self-righteous people often use to boost their standing in their own eyes. The way that they do this is there in verse 9. He spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. The way that most people boost their delusion of self-righteousness and acceptance with God is by comparing themselves not to God or not even to other people who are better than them but rather by comparing themselves with people who are beneath them, people who have obvious flaws and faults. In other words, they're comparing themselves to the wrong standard. Comparing themselves to the wrong standard. In this parable, we see this technique of comparative righteousness on display in the temple. Two men are overheard praying. One is a publican and the other is a self-righteous Pharisee. As the publican prayed, he started by confessing his sin. Sins that the Pharisee had not committed. Upon hearing this, the Pharisee begins to pray and to praise, thanking God that he did not sin like This other man did sin, and yet his prayer wasn't really a prayer of thanks. It was really an announcement about his own righteousness. God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Very, very short prayer, if we can call it that. Five times he mentions the pronoun I. It's more of a boast than a prayer. But this is what self-righteous people will do. They're self-centered, proud, they're critical, they find fault, nitpicking in all kinds of ways. The more fault they find in others, the more righteous they feel about themselves. And every fault they see in another is a a rung on the ladder of their self-elevation. But Jesus' parable here is designed to bring them down to a real self-awareness. And we can use this parable with good effect today. 
The self-righteous hearers in Christ's day were shocked by the outcome of this parable. For the Pharisee stood condemned and the repentant publican emerged as the one who had a standing with God. This man went home justified. God did not hear the prayer of the Pharisee. That's a surprising statement. God did not hear the prayer of the Pharisee. Verse 11 says he prayed thus with himself. It was the publican whose prayer was heard. Verse 13. The publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes under heaven, but smote upon his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse verse 14. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And once again, Jesus distanced himself from the false religion of the day. So there's six ways that Jesus dealt with self-righteous people. And uh, I think these are six ways that we might engage people Uh, with some profit as we seek to have those evangelistic conversations with them. All right, well, let's conclude in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, you sent your Son to be the Saviour of the world. Uh, Thank you that uh, Jesus came and died upon the cross. He was lifted up. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. But not only was Jesus the sacrifice, uh, Jesus was also an evangelist, uh, pointing people towards your saving truth. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the sacrificial work of Christ upon the cross, uh, which um, he alone could do. We also thank you for the, uh, the example uh, of evangelism that he set for us. This is something that... Uh, um, we very much can be a part of. Indeed, Lord, this is something you would require of us. Uh, You've given us the great commission to go and tell others. And uh, Lord, we pray that you might help us to do that. Uh, Lord, we confess our own inabilities and certainly our own unworthiness. Uh, And we take some encouragement from the scriptures. Uh, Lord, there are things here which are are good for us, helpful for us, uh, good for us to know, uh, helpful if we might by your grace, be able to pursue them. Uh, Lord, we know that um, in, in all kinds of evangelistic conversations, we depend very much on the Spirit of God uh, to lead us. Uh, there are some conversations that we cannot uh, predict how they're going to go or even what the best thing to, to say is, and yet uh, we thank you that the Spirit of God helps us and guides us uh, in, into the Scriptures. And uh, Lord, as we, we understand the Scriptures more and more, we pray the Spirit of God. Uh, would be able to guide us uh, through our knowledge and understanding of the scriptures. And uh, we pray that uh, through this means uh, you might help us uh, to reach others with the gospel. Uh, We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.